Uh, hey, if you're a guest with us, um, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be worshiping with you. Uh, you're catching us in the middle of a summer sermon series called Stories Old and New. And for the summer, we decided to look at some of the stories from the Old Testament and see how those old stories can be new in our lives uh, right now, today. And we've also been sharing stories of faith, our, our stories about how we experience God and the Lord in our lives. That's how the old story has become new in our lives. So uh, that's, that's the series. And uh, uh, we're using the, the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, as for, for our readings throughout the summer because our elementary age kids are with us in the service. And we just thought that that might be a fresh way to listen to some of these old stories. So uh, in a moment, we'll hear the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments, Ten Ways to Be Perfect. But before we listen, let's pray, shall we? Uh, God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that you indeed make old stories new and fresh in our lives today by your Spirit. Uh, God, thank you that we gather around a story today, a story about Jesus, that you lived and died and rose again, Lord, that you're alive right now, that you deeply desire to be present in the lives of people and eager for us to know you. So by your spirit, help all of that happen today. Pour out your spirit on us. Soften our hearts, open our ears and minds. Make us attentive to you and able to hear what you're speaking. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the scripture this morning, from as Pastor John said, the Jesus storybook, uh, 10 ways to be perfect. And it's a paraphrase of Exodus 16, and 17, and 19 through 40. So many, many chapters in these pages. So there they all were in the desert. Grannies and granddads, babies, uncles, aunts, children, moms and dads, out there in the middle of the desert. They had blisters from all the walking. They were hungry and thirsty and much, much, much too hot. We don't like it, they said. This stinks. And, to be honest, so did they for that matter. Because no one had taken a bath in who knows how long. Now remember because this is something they didn't, God had done amazing things for them. He had hidden them inside of a cloud. He'd moved the sea. He'd set them free. But God's people still weren't happy. They didn't care about being free. What Wasn't it better when they were slaves? At least they'd had lots and lots of delicious food to eat. God doesn't want us to be happy, they said. Now, that was the same lie Adam and Eve had heard all those years before. God brought us out here to kill us. It's so hot. God doesn't love us. But but they didn't know God very well, did they? Every day of their journey... God kept showing his people how well he would look after them. If only they would trust him and obey him. 
When they were hungry, for example, God made the sky rain down food, bread from heaven. Bread from heaven. What is it, they said. They didn't know. So they called it, what is it? Which, of course, is a very good name for something which you don't know what it is. When they were thirsty and quarreling, God made water flow from a rock. Moses called that place, perhaps ironically, quarreling, because that seemed like a good name too. And still God's children didn't trust him or do what he said. They thought they could do a better job of looking after themselves and making themselves happy. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without God. So God led them to a mountain. God wanted to talk to his people and show them what he was like. He wanted to help them know him better and and tell him about the special land he was going to give them. The whole earth belongs to me, God said. But I have chosen you. You are my special family. I want you to live in a way that shows everyone else what I'm like. So they can know me too. Now the book changes, so i got to turn the book. God called Moses up the mountain. The great mountain shook. A thick cloud fell. Thunder rolled. Lightning crackled. And God gave Moses ten rules called commandments. I want you to love me more than anything in all the world and know that I love you too, God told them. That's the most important thing of all. God gave them other rules like don't make yourselves pretend gods. Don't kill people or steal or lie. The rules showed God's people how to live and how to love him and be close to him and how to be happy. They showed how life worked best. God promises to always look after you, Moses said. Will you love him and keep those rules? We can do it. Yes, we promise. But they were wrong. They couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, they could never keep all of God's rules all of the time. But God knew they couldn't, and he wanted them to know it too. Because only one person could keep all the rules. And many, many years later, God would send him to stand in their place and be perfect for them. Because ultimately, rules could never save them. Only God could do that. Thank you. So we've been looking at the old stories, the story of the Exodus. Uh, the Exodus happened, God's people were free, they were out in the desert. Uh, They were physically free, but as we kind of heard in that story, they weren't anywhere close 
to living in the kind of freedom that God intended for people. Uh, said, the, said the Jesus Storybook Bible, they were hungry and thirsty and much, much, much too hot. We don't like it, they said. They had forgotten the amazing things God had done for them. And then they said this, God doesn't want us to be happy. It was the same lie Adam and Eve had heard in the garden all those years before. Maybe God doesn't love you. Maybe God really doesn't care about you. Maybe God doesn't want you to be happy. So they were free, but not really. I mean, they were, they were physically free again, but miles and miles from that full freedom of new life that God intends for all people everywhere. They, they complained and murmured and quarreled and, and spiritually they were stuck. Their hearts were far from God. And again, as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, and still God's children didn't trust him or do what he said. They thought they could do a better job of looking after themselves and making themselves happy. But God wouldn't be satisfied with that because God wants us not just to know about God, uh, but to know him relationally, personally. So God came down again to rescue. He came and gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on behalf of all the people. And and they were never intended to be a rule-based approach to our relationship with God. And this is kind of the point for the day. I'll just fess up. The, the, the ten rules were never intended to be a rule-based approach to this, uh, this thing called faith. I, I don't know where you're at in your journey of faith. I remember when I first came to the church, I heard people say something like this. In the Old Testament, people were saved by works, by obeying the law, and in the New Testament, people are saved by grace. Now, I want to be unequivocally clear. That is wrong. It's not true, and it will never be true. It is not biblical. Do not believe it. God didn't somehow like change gears on us us all of a sudden, where in the Old Testament, it was you've got to keep every, every rule perfectly to be saved, and then suddenly there's this grace thing in the New Testament. And I'll unpack this a bit throughout the message, but think of Abraham in the Old Testament. Abraham believed God, says the Bible, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So I was trying to think of illustrations that would work. So I found one that worked for me. If you're not a home improvement person, this might not work for you. But imagine you've got a little project on the house and you go to Lowe's and you stock up on some things. Maybe you're repairing your front porch and you need a To replace a little bit of wood, you need some caulk, some primer, some paint. You get all that stuff. It's a couple hundred bucks. You get home, do the project, realize you didn't need this, that, and the other thing. You go back to the return desk at Lowe's, and you take your receipt and those things. And, of course, they look at your receipt, and they they credit your account. So if you paid with a credit card, you never actually have to pay for those things that you originally bought because your account was credited and covered for that debt that you incurred, right? You, You never actually had to pay that it, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. His account was credited for some debt that he had incurred, not because he returned his stuff to Lowe's, but because he trusted, because he believed. 
And, and that's the way it has always been with God. Since human beings fell uh, from grace in the Garden of Eden, you know, it's always been that we come back to God by God's grace and through faith. Because we can't save ourselves, it has to be by grace. And the, the mechanism by which we access that is this trust, this, this reliance upon God, right? So the fundamental problem we face as human beings is not that you and I do things wrong, that what, what Christians might call as sin, though that's a big problem. The fundamental problem we face is not that we do bad things, but that we're naturally inclined to do bad things. So this would be the biblical difference between sin, understood as behavior, and a sinful nature, understood as a broken kind of fallen makeup in the, in, on, our, on our insides that, that has us lean that way naturally now. Our natural inclination is to do bad things. And this is why rules can never save. This is why no attempt at rule keeping or setting up religious laws and guidelines with the hope of keeping them all perfectly so that we can feel right with God. This is why that always fails because you can put your best foot forward, make every effort to do everything right and correctly and you might hold the sinful behavior at bay for a while but in the end, the nature always wins. The tide always comes in and just overwhelms you. And that's the part we can't fix on our own. The nature, it's beyond us. we, We cannot fix that on our own. So thus, no set of rules and no attempt at rule keeping can ever rescue us. Only God can rescue us, and we need to be rescued. So let's look at this a little more by by looking at what Moses did after the Ten Commandments were were given him, what he did with the people of God. So last week, uh, we talked about God's covenant with uh, then Abram. Now we know him as Abraham. And if, if you weren't here, this is all recorded in Genesis chapter 15. And let me summarize it just very quickly because the summary is important. That chapter in Genesis 15 records the covenant that God made with Abram. And back in that day, when a covenant was made, the, the two parties entering the agreement, the agreement would go and get animals, and they would slit the throat of the animals and let, their, let the animal bleed out into a puddle of blood. Then they would slice the animal in half lengthwise, lay one half on one side, one on the other. Then the two parties entering the covenant would stand on opposite sides of this pool of blood, and they would take turns walking through it in, in bare feet. And what they were saying was, let it be to me like these animals if I don't keep my end of this deal. So it was, it was not just a contract, it was a way amped up contract, right? A, a relational agreement, a, a relational agreement to which one staked their life. That, that's a biblical covenant, right? So the, the, both, both people would walk through and say, let it be to me like these animals if I don't make good on, on, on this. So, so Moses receives the Ten Commandments and then he puts together another covenant cutting ceremony kind of like that Genesis 15 thing. Only he puts together the large group version. It's not just two people. It's God and a whole community of people. So look at this from the scripture. This was in the, in the actual body of the text of the summary version we just read. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men 
and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord, the animals for the covenant-cutting ceremony. Moses took half of the blood, the blood that was spilled from those animals for the covenant-cutting ceremony, and put it in bowls. And the other half he splashed against the altar, presumably to represent God re-engaging this covenant. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has asked, we will obey. Then Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. The large group version of them walking through the pool of blood, right? Binding their lives to the keeping of this covenant. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So you, you can see it, right? It's, it's just right there. Uh, that this agree, a covenantal agreement that they made. Thus, when they were sprinkled with blood, the people were saying, let it be to me like these animals if I don't keep up my end of, of this deal. Now, this, this in, in, in theological terms, this is referred to as the Mosaic Covenant, but uh, the best theology, in my opinion, understands this as an extension of God's covenant with Abraham, not as a completely separate or new thing that, that as we talk, move through the covenants of the Bible, we're talking about one big, large covenant of grace that God has with people, and we're just seeing different pieces of that. So the covenant Moses ratified with the people confirmed and supported the covenant God made with Abraham. Now, the piece that was a bit different than what God said to Abraham was that this thing with Moses had some conditions attached to it. That the whole obedience thing, if I obey then, right? And I think that's where our thinking about this gets murky. And quite frankly, I think this is one of the greatest points of tension for us in our faith in Jesus, because we don't know exactly what to do with this. Uh, Specifically, to what degree does our obedience factor into our relationship with God? How, how How does this all work exactly? And how am I to think about this? Look, look at this from Exodus uh, 19. This was, this was God speaking, actually. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the Lord is saying, look, you saw what I did. You saw that I came down to rescue. And now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, this is the part that's really important to understand. Because at first blush, it might appear that if you do something wrong, you're out. Right? That you forfeit this, this covenant uh, to which you've agreed. But this doesn't really jibe with the larger teaching of the Bible. I mean, it puts us in the place of an employee who's working really hard and diligently to please our employer and to earn some benefit, some gain, like a paycheck or something. And the basic idea is that if we perform adequately, then we'll get rewarded. Or at least, if we don't underperform terribly, we won't be punished or fired, right? And, and, and like I said earlier, some people seem to be under the impression that this uh, is how God related to people in the Old Testament. And that, that is, that's just wrong. That's not right. That this employer-employee way of thinking where our relationship with God is based entirely on our spiritual performance 
is, is wrong because that's not how God relates to people. It never has been how God relates to people. And from all the knowledge we have of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, it certainly appears that it never will be the way God relates to people. People are rescued by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. All the boasting points back at God and what he's done in Jesus. And, and for those of you who know the Bible a little better, that's my just summary version of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So the command to obey God is not, nor ever has been, about earning God's grace, about somehow doing it right so that God in some way is indebted to you and owes you something. That thinking is just, it's spiritual craziness, Right? But so many of us are kind of stuck in that because it's in the cultural water in which we swim, but I'll get to that in a moment. So the command to obey God is not, nor ever has been about earning God's grace. Obedience is the evidence of love for God's grace and love for God. I mean, Jesus said it. If you love me, keep my commands. You know, obedience is the evidence of love for God. So saved by grace alone, because of our sinful nature, our brokenness on the inside, that that thing we can't fix, there's no way we can fix, no matter what kind of tools we buy down at Lowe's, right? We can't do it. It's by grace, if it's going to happen at all. And through faith, that's that's trust, reliance. Uh, Think of it this way. If someone makes a promise to you, you will live in the blessing of that promise only to the degree that you trust the one who promised. Does that make sense? If somebody makes you a promise and you kind of don't trust the person, you're like, we'll see. But if someone makes a promise to you and you have a deep, heartfelt, gut level, that's good. That's money in the bank then suddenly you can live in the blessing of that promise because you trust the one who promised. That's the deal. By grace, through faith, through trust, and through that trust, you access the fullness of this, this blessing. Right? This, this really gets back to the first of the Ten Commandments. God didn't give it to us as a rule to be obeyed to earn his favor, God gave it to us because it's the primary broken inclination of the human heart. Remember the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The problem, says John Calvin, is that our hearts are factories for idols. Meaning, we're perpetually manufacturing things, kind of bright, shiny things, that capture our attention and in which we choose to place our trust. Whenever we do that, our trust is misguided because we can't trust the promise of those things we make. They're lying. I've told you the donut story, you fifth regulars. I was in seminary after seminary chapel in the donut coffee line after the service. I reached to pick up a chocolate-covered donut and our Old Testament professor, Tom Bogart, leans in and he says, you know, John, that thing's making promises it can't keep. It's that way. I mean, that's the funny version. But whatever it is, uh, and and you've experienced it, like if you've tried to follow Jesus 
ambition for career advancement and you finally arrive at, at, at the position and level of, of achievement you've always wanted, as Lee Iacocca reported in his autobiography, made it to the top, rescued the whole, the whole company in the, in the big Chrysler tur- turnaround. And he, and he reported, I did everything I hoped to do as, a, as an executive and I still felt empty. It, it doesn't deliver on the promise. Right? You have to trust the one who promised. So that means don't, don't manufacture things to trust. Trust the one uh, whom we can really trust, right? Because of what he's done on our behalf, what God has done for us in Jesus. So the command to obey God has never been about being rescued by keeping all the rules. God wants people to be free. Rules don't rescue. Rules don't rescue. Jesus rescues, right? You might then ask, why did God give us the Ten Commandments then? If rules don't rescue, why did he give us ten rules? What's the point? What's the purpose? Great question. There are great answers. There's been really good thinking about this. A quick summary version is that the the function of the Ten Commandments in our life is it, it serves as a mirror. Kind of holds a mirror up in our face so that we can't get away from it. Wanting us to have an appropriate perspective on ourselves. Specifically to understand that we don't just do a couple things wrong here or there, but that we are thoroughly broken and completely unable to rescue ourselves. Because you get this set of rules and you start trying to do it and you realize, man, I'm just, I'm crashing and burning almost every moment. There's no way I can do this, right? So a mirror, then a restraint of evil is another purpose. That's for another day, but really the law of God has worked its way into the legal code of many countries around the world, right? Especially ours here in the United States. In that way, it is very practically and pragmatically restraining evil in our society right now. It is doing that. And then finally, the law reveals what's pleasing to God. Calvin thought this was the highest function of the law, that, you know, how how to live a life that honors God, uh, but as a response of gratitude after we've realized we can't save ourselves, knowing everything God has done for us. But again, that's another story too. So one of the primary purposes of the Ten Commandments is to help us understand we can't save ourselves. That mirror right, right here. Um, we need to be rescued. We can't rescue ourselves. I showed this image last week, and uh, it seems appropriate to show it again after uh, a VBS week entitled Shipwrecked, right? It's... It, Our spiritual condition is like this. It's like we're floating in the water, no land anywhere, no life preserver, nothing to get leverage, and reaching out with one arm and grabbing ourselves by the hair and thinking that we can pull ourselves out of the water. As much as you might think it will work, it won't. We can't do that. It it doesn't work. So it's a a quick visual illustration of what St. Augustine described this way, the law, Ten Commandments, orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. In other words, one of the primary purposes of the Ten Commandments is to prove to us that rules don't rescue and that we need to be rescued. It points right back to reliance upon grace and accessing that through trust. Now, the very great challenge is that like fish in an aquarium, 
you and I swim in cultural water that is tainted. The, the sociologist, uh, a great sociologist at Notre Dame named Christian Smith has done incredible work on this. He set out specifically to determine what emerging adults in the United States actually believe. What is it that they actually believe spiritually? And after uh, what I understood to be one of the largest sociological studies ever conducted, he came back with this answer. What emerging adults in America believe is something he called, it's a mouthful now, moralistic therapeutic deism. The moralistic part is that young people in our country believe that if we're good, we will earn favor from God. Therapeutic, we believe that God isn't with us normally, but if you get in a real pinch, you could pray, and that might make you feel better. Deism is a spiritual belief that God created the world, but like winding a clock and putting the clock on the mantle in your living room and walking away from it, God has set the earth spinning and started all of our lives and then walked away from it and is not actively involved. It's just kind of running on its own. So think with me now and be sensitive to this because this is the world in which you live. The primary religion of our country is that. That if we do good things, we earn favor from God. That God's kind of the big therapist in the sky. You can go if something gets, gets, gets really bad. And deism, God is not actively involved in my life now. So this moralistic part, this part about if there are rules... I should keep them and I'll get something good as if it's all up to me. That, that is in you. I know it is because it's in me. It can't not be in us because we're swimming in that water. We're, we breathe it every day. It's in the insinuations. It's in the assumptions. It's in the conversations that we have with people all the time. And, and that's how Christian people can get to the point of saying, well, in the Old Testament, you know, you're saved by works, and, and in the New Testament, you're saved by, by grace. And no! Never! There is no way somebody can pull themselves out of the water. Ever! Right? This is by grace, through faith. And the incredible thing is that God came down again. What makes the new covenant new isn't that we no longer have to obey all the rules to be right with God. It's that Jesus kept our end of the covenant for us. That's what communion is all about. Again, right? So God in Jesus says, hey, I'll keep my end of the deal. And you know what? In Jesus, I'll sneak down to your side and keep your end of the deal for you. And I know I've said this before, but this is the main thing, right? As you consider that deal, no, it's a really, really good deal. God is saying, I will keep both ends of this covenant perfectly and fully on your behalf. You don't have to have the spiritual to-do list to be right with me. All you have to do is trust me. Rely upon me. Put, put your whole life down upon what I did for you on the cross. I mean, that's the thing. Now, back to the Lowe's example, right? So you, you do the home improvement project. You realize you don't need a thing. You take it back and they're about to credit your account with 1995, right? Because you returned those couple things. 
but instead, $100 million is credited to your credit card, right? Saying no to Jesus is the logical spiritual equivalent of saying, no, I'd rather take the 1995 things. Really, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It works exactly that way for you and me right now. We believe God. We believe Jesus. We trust. And the perfect obedience, the perfect life of Jesus is credited to us. The hundred million just falls into our account. Spiritually speaking now, right? Whoa! It covered all of the debts you've ever incurred. It covers your current debts you owe right now. And wonder of all wonders, it covers even the debts you have yet to incur. Which doesn't give you freedom to go do whatever you want, but does give you the incredible capacity to trust and rely upon a good God who has really done this for you, for us. It's amazing. This is the gospel. This, this received righteousness through, by grace and, and through faith. So please, please, don't let this whole Jesus rescue thing uh, uh, just roll by you. Engage it, would you? Uh, 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 allow this to get in. And, and this whole by grace through faith thing with the idea that our hearts are factories for idols, manufacturing other things to trust, know that that's why the Bible can say this as well. Those who bow to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Right? Don't be the one who says, I'll take the 1995, please. Don't forfeit the grace that could be yours. Right, the Ten Commandments point us back to God. Don't love anyone or anything more than you love God. It's by grace and through faith that we are made right with the Lord. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you so much that the story we rehearse every week is not a fictional story. Thank you that it happened. Thank you that these events are pinned to the timeline of history, Exodus and cross. Thank you that you have come down for the purpose of rescuing us. Thank you that you've made your good purpose known to us. God, fill us with your spirit. Make us overflow with your grace and mercy such that We're so full it can't help but overflow into the lives of other people. God, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you that you can be trusted. Help us wherever we are and with whatever we're struggling. Help us turn toward you and release ourselves to you again in trust. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.